Every Bible, as you would, open with me to Joshua 22. We're studying through the book of Joshua. We've arrived at chapter 22. <clears throat> Stephen Crane, uh, in his work, The Red Badge of Courage, dispels the, the romance of war at a time when the people in our nation had sort of been glamorizing the idea of, of battle and warfare. Um, Crane portrays the reality of war in his book with its terrors and its contradictions, its problems and its miseries. He gives you a picture of a soldier, a young man, in the book with his wound or his red badge of courage. And he's wandering along behind enemy lines looking for his brothers. Uh, it's a gripping picture, but it takes away, as, you descri- as he describes this scene, uh, all of your tastes for war because... War has always been a miserable affair. It was that way for Israel and for their campaign. And though they were victors in the campaign, though they ultimately won and the, the, the promised land was secured, for seven and a half years they battled and, uh, and, and, and they, they shed blood and they engaged in warfare and they had been given marching orders and, and all of their orders to, to move and to set up um, battle and camps. And they'd had enough of the discomforts for war to last an entire lifetime. And so when we get to these chapters, chapters that we're in now, where we've seen the land allotted and given to the people, and now the land has been allotted and we're in the final section of the book where we'll see some some conclusion to the book of Joshua. This has been a long-awaited for time. The people of Israel um, are ready for peace. This is a nation that has had all they want of war. Let me remind you of the summary verses that we saw last week in chapter 21, the way that we ended chapter 21. You read in verse 44 of chapter 21, And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all of their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all of their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. These are just summary verses for us, but for Israel, these were cherished truths. This rest was what Israel had been striving for and hoping for and awaiting for as long as they could remember. And shalom had come to them. Not one, the text says, not one of the good promises of God failed. Shalom, though, is more than just peace or rest from war. For the Israelites and for a Hebrew understanding, shalom meant everything that you needed for a full and a peaceful life, uh, wholeness in every way imaginable. And so for almost a decade, uh, uh, they had been in war, they had been in battles, and now they have shalom. They have an opportunity for wholeness and peace. So remember what that means, though, for Israel. Let me give you a little bit of, of a reminder What we saw happen as we moved into the book of Joshua, two and a half tribes uh, had formed an agreement with Moses by God's permission that they would settle east of the Jordan River. So if you think of the promised land and the, 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 the river Jordan sort of dividing the land, two and a half tribes said that they wanted their land to be east of the Jordan. And God said, this is fine. And they made that agreement with Moses. But the agreement was that they would first go over and help their brothers to fight for the land west of the Jordan. And if you remember that land, uh, it was filled with giants. It was filled with fortified cities and numerous armies and, uh, and modern warfare, things like chariots. And it struck fear into most of the Israelites' hearts. And yet God said, if you're going to have the land east of the Jordan, you must go and help your brothers fight west of the Jordan so that they too can have an inheritance. And so the two and a half tribes, they left their 
um, their homes. They left their wives. They left their children. They left their livestock, all of their possessions on the eastern side of the Jordan. And they went. 40,000 men went. They left everything they had and they went to fight with their brothers. That's a remarkable thought. A remarkable unity that God had created among his people. And so understanding that background, listen to the words as we move into chapter 22. Listen to the words that Joshua speaks to those men, those two and a half tribes, the remainder, what survived of the 40,000 men that came to fight west of the Jordan. This is what Joshua said to them as they've been given rest and it's time for them to, to go back to their home east of the Jordan. Look at chapter 22. We'll read verses 1 through 4 and what Joshua said to them. Starting verse 1. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And he said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and you have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given, you rest, uh, has given rest to your brothers as he has promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. These were faithful men. These were dear, dear men to Joshua's hearts. They had left everything to help fight with their brothers, and Joshua's heart was bound up with these men after fighting for seven and a half years with them, knit together in a way that, that for those of us that have never been to war, we'll never understand fully. I imagine this was something like a, a parent about to send their child off to school for the first time. For the first time, they would be out from under his direct influence, his direct leadership and command. And Joshua was concerned primarily that they would keep the faith. You see, Joshua was aware of something that we miss, not having a, a, a physical picture of the land in our mind, Joshua was aware of something, that the Jordan River was a substantial barrier. This is why it was a big deal that the Lord had miraculously led them across it. Almost 4,000 feet in elevation as you went down and then back up across the other side. Now almost one-third of the people of Israel would be away from the tabernacle. They would be away from the other two-thirds of Israel, away from the worship of Yahweh, away from the altar where sacrifice would take place. And Joshua was concerned here in the text, in Joshua 22, what would happen to these two and a half tribes east of the Jordan when they were out of sight and out of mind? What would happen with them? Would there be solidarity in Israel? Would there be a unity among the people of God? Would they remain faithful to Yahweh being so far from the tabernacle and the worship of Yahweh? And so Joshua charges them in verses 5 and 6. And these two commands are, are these two verses are flooded with emotion from Joshua. Uh, within these two short verses, you have six infinitives or six commands in two short verses. You can imagine the emotion that Joshua spoke these words with. If you will, read with me. We'll continue in verse 5. Joshua says, And only be very careful to observe the commandment of the law. That's number one. That Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God. That's two. To walk in all his ways. Three. To keep his commandments, four, to cling to him, that's number five, and to serve him, number six, with all your heart, with all your soul. And so Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. So Joshua gives this heartfelt command. 
He says, listen, listen to these, these commands. And, and as we observe today, as, as the church today, listen to what uh, he's directing them towards. Listen to who he's directing their attitude and their hearts towards. If you look back at those, those commands that I just read to you in verses 5 and 6, to love God, to walk in his ways, his commandments, cling to him, serve him. Friends, Joshua's priority for those two and a half tribes is that their vertical relationship with God would be right. Because here's what Joshua knew. If their vertical relationship with God, with Yahweh, was right, then their horizontal relationship with the rest of Israel would be okay. There would be solidarity. There would be unity. As long as they were in love with God and following God's commands, they would be a, a unified people. We often get this backwards, right? And in our lives, we, we try to reform or mend or fix our relationships with people when we've not even considered is our relationship with God right? Is, is our relationship with God vertically as it should be so that our horizontal relationships can follow? Verses 7 and 8 are a summary of what we just heard. And then verse 9 says this. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go back to the land of Gilead, their own land of which they had possessed themselves by the command of the Lord through Moses. It reads just like a matter of fact. It's just sort of run-of-the-mill information, just sort of ho-hum facts. But imagine this scene. Imagine the scene that's before us here. If you can put yourself there. I mean, think about even as a kid, right? Even as a kid that went to church camp. Uh, and after a short week together at, at church camp, you loaded up into church vans and you came back home. But what happened before you loaded into those vans on that last day when you're spending the last five or ten minutes together? Boo-hooed because of your new best friend. You, 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 you boo-hooed because of this lifelong friend that you had made in four short days. You signed t-shirts and you exchanged addresses. You promised to be pen pals for forever. For the rest of your days, you would write at least once a week. You hugged and laughed together, maybe saying kumbaya one more time. It was an emotional moment. If you can remember leaving church camp, that was like devastating. And it was only a, a, a few short days of, of, of meals in the chow hall and, and high ropes courses. This was seven and a half years of shedding blood with your brothers in war. A daily uh, clinging of swords that reminded you that your life was dependent upon your brother fighting beside you. I mean, th this was eating every meal together, trusting God at every turn, relying on, on, on the men that you were serving with for your very life. Sleeping in tents as you were away from your family and your kids. Verse 9 is not just ho-hum conveying of data. It's an emotional departing. They turned and they went back east toward their land. But you can imagine it was with tears in their eyes as they left a part of themselves there in Shiloh with their brothers. They were leaving a part of themselves with the brothers that they had been fighting with for seven and a half years. And yet there's this lingering question for Joshua, for Eleazar the priest and for the leaders of Israel. As the two and a half tribes leave to go back east to be with their wives, to be united again with their children... Will there really be, will there really be solidarity, unity within the land when they get back across the Jordan? Will we really be one people? Will we really be united in our worship of Yahweh? And it's a valid concern because it's the very next thing that comes up. Look at verse 10. And when the people came to the region 
of the Jordan, that is, in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size, and the people of Israel heard it said, Heard it, and the people of Israel heard it said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan, in the region about the Jordan, on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Are you, are you kidding me? They just left. And immediately the bulk of Israel looks across toward the Jordan and they see it. an altar has been built. An unauthorized altar. A duplicate of the altar that was erected at Shiloh. And this sort of thing was forbidden. It was punishable by death. It was a rival altar. A place to offer sacrifices to Yahweh that had not been condoned. And so the Israelites in the West... They, they, they have this, this, this clear sign in their mind as they see this altar being constructed, this huge altar of imposing size. They, they see it and it's immediately to them a sign of defection. They've left the worship of Yahweh. They've, they've left obedience. They're not faithful. They're traitors. They're hardly out of our sight and they've rebelled against God. What is it with this apostasy? And so they conclude that they must go to war against them. These brothers that we've been fighting with for seven and a half years, we must go and strike them down. And you say, man, that seems drastic. It seems to be uh, a strange action to take against your brothers. But fidelity to God must remain a priority, even above our fidelity to, to our family. And so the question for us, at least one of the questions we wrestle with in this text was, uh, is this, was Israel, the bulk of Israel, the western tribes, were they right or were they wrong in these conclusions? Well, as with much of life, there's a little bit of wrong here and a little bit of right here. It's right in the fact that, that, that despite that they were sick of warfare, despite the fact that they were just, just weary of fighting battles, when the, the thought that the honor of God had been tarnished crossed their minds, they're ready to strap their armor back on and go to blows for the name of God. That's an incredible thing to be applauded. Uh, you think about how that stands in contrast to the culture that we live in. A culture that says you have no right to judge someone else based on their beliefs or their convictions or their actions or decisions. Who, who are you to tell someone else that they're wrong uh, in their understanding of who God is or in their worldview or in their understanding of, of Jesus? Who are you to tell them that they're wrong? That's what our culture would say. And here we should applaud Israel that they're so concerned with the holiness of God, with solidarity to him, with fidelity to him, that they're willing to go to blows over it. They, they had learned the lesson of, of the city of Ai, if you remember that battle, that there are some things more important than the preservation of human life, and that's the holiness of God. So that's to be applauded. That's a, that's a good thing that they were that concerned with the holiness of God, but they were also wrong. You see, they're wrong in that they immediately jumped to the worst possible conclusions about their eastern brothers and sisters. That without hesitation, without the benefit of the doubt, they assume the worst in the family of God. Often people are naturally negative, assuming the worst. But crowds of people are almost always negative when gathered together. Robert Fulton was an engineer and an inventor. Uh, that's been credited with inventing the successful commercial uh, steamboat. 
named the, the North River, River Steamboat. In 1807, the steamboat traveled on the Hudson River from New York to Albany. Think about how far that is. New York to Albany and back, and it took 62 hours, but it forever changed uh, river traffic and trade in America. But, as with a lot of great inventions, when he was ready to first put it to test, he put it into the river and the crowds gathered along the banks to see if this thing was really going to work. It all seemed like, uh, like, like magic or something that, would, that had no, made no sense to most people. And so they gathered along the riverbanks and they chanted as, as Fulton put his boat into the water, it'll never start, never start, never start. But it did. And then it moved, and it began to, to go down the river, and so the crowd changed their tune to, it will never stop, it will never stop, never stop. Uh, people can be negative, people can assume the worst, and spiritually believers are often given to this sort of negativism. I mean, think about it. Humans will so easily believe the worst when they hear it. People gloat over uh, people's faults when they hear about them. And the scripture commands us as, as Christians to be different, as followers of God, we're to be different. And Paul says that love believes all things. That doesn't mean that, that love is naive, but it means that love chooses to believe the best in someone until there's sufficient evidence to the contrary. It doesn't jump to the wrong or worse conclusions. Think about what would look different if we got this, church family. Think about the marriages that would be different if we could always default to believe the best in our spouse until we're proven wrong. Think about the churches that would not have split if, they could, if believers could believe the best in their brothers or sisters, give the benefit of the doubt. Think about workplaces that would be different if we could believe the best in our coworkers or our boss or our employees to give the benefit of the doubt. Israel had this tendency, and, and, and think about the, the consequences. Think about how this thing could have went wrong if, if Israel would have given in to this tendency to, to continue assuming the worst, right? One-third of Israel is across the Jordan. The two-and-a-half tribes are across the Jordan. Imagine this tendency to, to assume the worst in others if the other two-thirds, the western tribes, went over and rose up and challenged them to war. Right? The larger western portion, two-thirds, defeat the one-third that's east of the Jordan and, and kill them off. But in doing so, they attack the western tribes, and the western tribes lose a third of their army. And now all of Israel is a third of what they would have been before this whole misunderstanding. And as the Canaanites love to do, they form an alliance, and they destroy them. And the Israelites are no more because of uh, hastiness, because of jumping to to conclusions, forming wrong conclusions. Fortunately, though, there were some cooler heads in the camp of Israel, and what they did next in the text, I think, gives us a pattern as believers, a pattern for us as the church, a pattern for us to imitate today. Um, tragedies avoided by the Western tribe's action and the Eastern tribe's response to their action. And so let's observe this pattern for conflict, resolution, a pattern for peace, if you will, I want to give us four observations from this, this Western, the Western tribes and how they handled this whole thing. Uh, and then we'll come back at the conclusion and look at some responses from the Eastern tribes and how they respond. Go ahead and give a disclaimer if this is helpful to you. Uh, Kent Hughes, Pastor Kent Hughes, walks through these four observations in his work on this passage. So if it's helpful, it's not mine. Uh, but these are four observations that he makes. And I think they're really helpful for us as the church in a pattern for walking through conflict. Number one, they formed a team to investigate the problem. Look at verses 13 and 14. They formed a team to investigate the problem. 
The people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead. Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. Now, knowing the intensity of this situation, there were probably Israelites in the West that thought this is unnecessary. Look, they're building an unauthorized altar over there. This is clear apostasy. This is not necessary. We should just go to war. We must engage them in battle because this is sin against God. And yet, the responsible group, uh, the responsible leadership of Israel, they crossed over to consider the situation. They, They formed a team to evaluate the facts, to see what was really going on behind what their eyes could see. And they did so in community. They did so with one another. They said, well, Matt... What are you saying here? Are you saying that every time I have a dilemma come up that I need to organize a formal team to help me fix it? Here's the good news. You don't have to. God's already done that part. He's given us one another. He's organized the team for you. It's called the church. It's called your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what we exist for. If If you think about how much better we'd be if we actually lived in the type of community, the body of Christ in such community that we actually weighed decisions We actually weighed offenses towards us and and we actually weighed plans with the help of our brothers and sisters that are also being led by the Spirit of God. How much better off we'd be. This is one of the reasons you join and become a member of a church that you can be in community with brothers and sisters that can help you weigh the things that you're walking through in life and see, is this something I need to do or is this something I need to engage or something I should pull back and be away from? We submit to being led through decisions with with wise counsel that we receive from Christian brothers and sisters. This leads to their their second step. Number two, they went and spoke face to face with the opposing party. Look at verse 15. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, and they said to them. There's a pastor that, that often hears about conflict and hopefully most of the time resolution. This is a major problem. This is a major part of the problem that we face. This is an incredibly courageous act on the part of the Western tribes. And sadly, it's often rare, even among God's people today, that we would go and speak face to face and deal with our brother and sister, the one that we feel may be walking into sin or have offended us. Way too often in conflicts, we talk to everyone except the person that we feel has done something wrong. Right? And way too often those go hand in hand. The temptation to immediately assume the worst in someone, immediately jump to conclusions, and the the simultaneous temptation to go and speak to someone else or anyone else but that person. These two are are two problems that just create a cycle of, of hurt and distrust and walls that would go up and cause division, even within the body of Christ. Now think about this. How many lives have been destroyed simply because someone didn't go and ask, what did you mean by this? Could you give me some clarification? Could you help me to understand why you made this decision or why you said this thing that you said? Number three, their third action in this pattern is they were very clear in expressing their concerns. They were very clear in expressing their concerns. In other words, they didn't beat around the bush. Look at verse 16. Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, what is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? 
Then verses 17 through 20 give, give examples, if you read 17 through 20, of, of how the, the whole people of God are affected by the sin of certain people, any people that are part of the people of God. They cite the example of, of Peor and the sin there that, that caused a plague to come against the people. They, they remind uh, those tribes of the sin of Achan, how Achan sinned and it fell upon the whole congregation of Israel. They're giving the examples here. They're speaking clearly. And then in verse 18, you see the whole thing summed up very plainly. Verse 18, if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. Here's the clear warning. Here's what they're saying, just as clear as day. Look, brothers and sisters, if you do this, if you build this altar, we're all going to be judged. We're all in this together. We're all one people. And so if you do this, you're bringing judgment upon all of us. And so this is a clear expression of their concern. It's not vague. It's not sarcastic. It's not passive aggressive. How much better off would we be, would we be if we learned to do this? If we, could, if we could practice the art of being direct and clear with our concerns, with our worries, instead of letting our emotions get the best of us and flying off the handle, or instead of uh, demeaning or belittling the person that we're engaging with over our concern, or instead of being passive-aggressive and, and hinting at something that we're thinking about, instead of just saying what it is that's on our hearts. And they were clear and direct at addressing the potential problem. Yet, though they're clear and they're direct, look at the fourth thing. Here's number four. They're generous and loving even in their confrontation. They're generous and loving even in their confrontation. In verse 19, you see just how generous and loving they are. Look at verse 19. If the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. And how beautiful this is. That even in the midst of their, their confrontation, even in the midst of them giving a straightforward, direct, and clear um, allegation, their expression here is, is generous and loving. That's what they're saying. Hey, if you don't want your land over there, if you've changed your mind and it's not good for you anymore, come back over here with us. We'll, we'll sacrifice some of our land so that you can have some land. We'll repartition the thing and we'll give you some of ours. We'll take a loss so that you can be included. Whatever you do, though, don't sin against God here. I would rather give up some of my land than you sin against God. It's incredibly generous, incredibly gracious, incredibly loving, even in confrontation. In a moment, we're going to see the, the outcome of these four steps and the way that the eastern tribes respond to them, which is also grace-filled. But first, I think it would do us well to see that this example from Joshua 22 perfectly aligns with the New Testament. It perfectly aligns with what Jesus says about our responsibility within the church. In Matthew chapter 18, I often don't get you to turn with me, but I'd love it if you turn with me to Matthew 18. We'll spend a couple minutes here because I think it's important that we see this is not just something in the Old Testament that happened once. This is actually the paradigm. It's actually what Jesus commands of us in the New Testament. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. These are the words of Jesus. He says this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Church, why is it that this command from Jesus is almost universally ignored within the church today? 
That, that for the majority of Christians, this verse might, it might as well not even exist in Scripture. Because the, the other pattern that we see more often is when a brother or sister, when a believer feels offended, when they feel that a brother or sister has sinned, instead of going to that individual, they go to another brother or sister and share it with them. They share the, 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 the sin or the issue with them, the allegation with them. And then that person gets the information and then they go share it with someone else. And then that person goes and shares it with someone else. And before long, everyone knows about the alleged sin except for the individual that supposedly did it. <laughs> Listen, church family, this is something that we can get into if we're not careful. And so often it comes across as righteousness even. But th- this is the way it often comes off in the church. We have a, a prayer request we need to share. And so often our prayer requests for other people can simply just be a, a baptized version of gossip. So before you share that prayer request, ask yourself, is my heart in some way excited by being able to be the first person to break this news? Hey, brother, we need to, we need to pray about this because fill in the blank. And if in any way I'm excited that I'm the one that gets to share this news, then friends, that's not a prayer request. That's the sin of gossip. And Jesus could not be more clear here. If you feel your brother or sister has sinned, Go to them. Go to them. And if you don't have the moral courage to go to them, then keep your mouth shut. Because it's unbiblical that you would go and talk to someone else. It's a sin that you would go and talk to someone else about that. That's where Jesus starts, but he continues. Look at verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This step does a couple things. One, it gives the opportunity for someone else to hear with you in that confrontation with that person, not as gossip, but with that person. Is this a valid concern? Is this really sin? You have someone else to weigh that with you. Second, though, if they agree with you that it is sin, then then they're there to confirm that to the person who has committed the sin. It's there as, as as another person to agree and say, yes, brother, this isn't best for you. Or yes, sister, this is clearly not biblical. This is sin. And so often the Lord uses that agreement among Christian brothers or sisters to bring someone, to lead someone to a place of repentance. But if in the case that doesn't happen, if they're still harboring that sin, harboring that activity in their heart, Jesus continues, verse 17. But if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This is an extreme step. It's a step that should only be taken with, with, with tears and with extreme prayer. But if we believe this book, church family, if we believe the Bible and we center our lives and this church around this book, then we must take passages like this seriously. This is God-given instructions on how we handle sin in the life of believers. This only God can judge me stuff is unbiblical. It is, it is not true. God places us within each other's lives, brothers and sisters, within each other's lives for our own sanctification. We should be able to go to one another and say, this isn't best for you. This is sin. And it shouldn't cause a division in the church. It's actually biblical. It's what should happen. Praise God when church discipline happens at the first step and someone's brought to repentance. But church, when it doesn't, we must be obedient to Christ's command here. When we put these instructions here in Matthew 18 together with the pattern that we see in Joshua 22, we see a beautiful thing can happen. That even in conflict, even where sin has been committed in in, in Matthew 18, now Joshua 22, that's not the case. We're going to see what happens there. But even where there's been sin, God can be glorified in the unity that the gospel brings a church 
where that's, that's being confronted and handled in the way that the Bible says that it should be handled. So let's jump back over to Joshua 22, because I want us to see this pattern and how it plays out there for the Israelites. Now remember the pattern. I want to give it to you one more time because it sets up for us the response. They formed a team to investigate the problem. They went and spoke face-to-face with the opposing party. They were clear in expressing their concerns, and they were generous and loving even in their confrontation. And let's look at the response from the eastern tribes. And again, I want to give us another pattern. (laughs) This one's shorter. It's only two. But a pattern for responding to accusation. What about when we're the one that's being accused of sin? What about when we're the one that's, that's having these allegations brought toward us? How do we handle confrontation when being blamed? The scriptures are clear there, so let's see their response. Number one, they took the accusation seriously. They took the accusation seriously. When they were confronted, um, it, wasn't, it wasn't that they would disregard it and act like it's some small matter. How, how often is that our natural response to disregard confrontation, to disregard an accusation, right? To put up a self-righteousness to say, I don't have to answer you about that. I, I'm above that accusation. So often that's our natural heart, but not for Israel, not for the eastern tribes. Let's look what they do. Verse 23. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said, in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, the mighty one, God, the Lord. The mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows and let Israel itself know if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to burn, uh, to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. Here's what they said. If we are doing what you're saying that we're doing, then may God judge us. And may he use you as the tool that he judges us with. Don't spare us. Don't save us. Kill us right here, right now. You know, it's a beautiful thing, right? Sounds extreme, but it's a beautiful thing. Why? Because they're affirming the severity of the accusation being made. They're saying, yes, if that is truly what we're doing, then we deserve death. Because it would be uh, disobedience. It would be unfaithfulness. It would be apostasy. We agree with you that if that's happening, then that is sin. They didn't let pride well up and get the best of them. They didn't lash out in anger. They didn't throw down the gauntlet with a holier-than-thou attitude. How dare you come and bring this to me? Think about your own life, believer. Can you respond in that way when you're accused? Can you, can you receive correction with humility and weigh your actions? Can you agree with a brother or sister when they bring a sin to you and, and confirm and affirm with them? Yes, that's severe. Or is our knee-jerk reaction to lash out? That's the first step. Look at the second step in this pattern for hearing an accusation. Secondly, they formed an honest, reasoned response to the accusation. Look at verse 24. No... But we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord, so your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Here's their reply, and it's very simple. We were afraid that the Jordan River and the border that it creates could cause us to one day be denied the worship of Yahweh. 
Not now, because we're good now. We just fought together for almost a decade. But one day, we might not be considered the people of God because we're over here across this river. So let us explain. Look at verse 26. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, not for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generation after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and our sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And it repeats it in verse 28, 29. In other words, we built that altar as a monument, as a reminder that we are all the people of God, that we have all the rights of worship in the land of Israel to the true God of Israel. We're a part of you. We actually did it to emphasize the unity and the solidarity that we have with you as worshipers of Yahweh, not to assert the priority or the commands of God. What they're saying is it's the exact opposite of what you expected. It's the exact opposite of what you jumped to in your rash conclusions. We wanted to do this because we wanted to be one of you. Oh, the grace and the clarity here. The eastern tribes are not rubbing the mistake uh, that they made in their faces. You dumb western tribes. You missed it. This is, this is clearly not what this They're not rubbing that in their face. They're not playing the role of a victim here, ridiculing the western tribes because they misunderstood the whole situation. Though that's often the way we lash out and, and jump to conclusions. When we're, when we're the one that's been vindicated, we like to let the one who's accusing know it. That's not what they did. It's grace-filled. It's a reasoned explanation. Watch the result in verses 30 and 31. And when Phinehas, the, the priest of the chiefs of the congregation, heard these words, it was good in their eyes. Verse 31, And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said, Today... We know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Can you imagine the relief there? As Phinehas and the leaders of Israel went to confront the eastern tribes, they feared the worst, right? This day could mean our demise. It could be our annihilation because these knuckleheads have sinned against God. And when people sin against God, the whole congregation of Israel pays for it. So we don't know what we're getting into when we go to confront them. It could mean that all of us are dying. They could see no explanation for how anything other than clear rebellion against God could be taking place. And they left rejoicing because it was a misunderstanding. And they were actually striving for greater unity. And that's how they left. They were more unified than ever before. They were, they were, they were a people, a people one under the, the worship of Yahweh. Verses 32 through 34 show us that they returned to the western tribes. They returned to the, the people, the two-thirds that were on the other side of the Jordan. And then verse 33 shows us, and the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. No more war. We're one people united in our love for the Lord. Catastrophe avoided because things were handled the right way. With grace, with clarity, being led by God. And as the, as the people of God, as the church today, we must be characterized in this way. If not, then we don't look like the people of God. And so often that's the case in the church today. We behave like people that are not the people of God. In Matthew chapter 5, and we're wrapping up. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, Jesus says this, Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We would do well to ask this morning, how can I be a peacemaker? In my home, in my workplace, in the church, 
How can I strive to be a peacemaker? And I think if Jesus were here this morning to elaborate on that statement, how can we be peacemakers? I think he would say this based on what he said in Matthew 18. Blessed are those who form a team to investigate a problem. Blessed are those who speak face to face with an opposing party. Blessed are those who, who, who are clear in expressing their concerns. Blessed are those who are generous and loving even in their confrontation. Blessed are those who go to a brother or sister that has sinned. Blessed are those who go with two or three witnesses to a brother or sister that continues in sin. Blessed are those who ultimately tell it to the church so that a brother or sister can be led to repentance. Blessed are those who take accusations seriously when directed toward them. Blessed are those who form an honest and reasonable response with humility when someone brings an accusation against them. I'm not trying to add to scripture here or say something that Jesus didn't say, but we must apply what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. If you want to model a pattern for peacemaking, take Matthew 18 and Joshua 22 and ask, does my life look like that? Does my life look like that? And here's the reality as we close and as Michael comes. All of that is only possible because of Calvary. Because Jesus shed his blood on a cross, was killed, was buried, and raised again. This is a grace to us. If we got what we deserved, if we got what we deserved, it would be that immediately in the moment of our sin, we're condemned and and sent to hell for all of eternity. But the fact that he tarries and the fact that he would give us brothers and sisters in Christ that would come and confront us in our sin, that's a grace to us. It's a grace to us that we would go to our brothers and sisters and say, hey, I don't believe this is best for you. But here's the deal, friends. None of that is possible but for the shed blood of Christ. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Here's the reality, friends. If you've never trusted Christ, he's tarried to this moment so that you can give your life to him, so that you can repent of your sins and give your heart and life to him. So if you're here this morning and you never trusted Christ, it's a grace to you that he's given you this moment. Call upon him for salvation today. If you're a believer here this morning, then part of any of this may be what the Spirit is leading you to do. Maybe there's someone you need to confront as a, in a loving and generous and clear way, some sin that you, you know the Holy Spirit would lead you to, to address. Maybe you're here this morning and someone's confronted you and you know you've reacted wrongly. The Holy Spirit's convicted you. You didn't handle that the way you should have. You need to go from here, to the, from this place. First ask the Lord to forgive you and then go to that brother and sister and, and ask them to forgive you. Let's respond to the text this morning, however the Lord is leading in our hearts. Let's, uh, let's stand, we'll pray, and we'll sing.